Welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast. My name is Alan Bradford in Knoxville, Tennessee, and with me is Terry Ishi in Austin, Texas. How you doing, Terry? I'm good, man. Good to have you here, man. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, but also here with us is John Rittner. Uh, John is a pastor in Hollywood, California. He's also a Forge leader out there and a uh, new author. So just wrote the book Positively Irritating, which I highly recommend. I call it the gateway drug into the missional conversation. And I, this is one of the books I've been giving out like crazy. So John, just letting you know, I'm, I'm trying to support your sales and I'm sending people to johnrittner.com to go grab it. Not to Amazon. You can get it on Amazon, but go to johnrittner.com. J-O-N, no H in that name. J-O-N, Rittner, R-I-T-N-E-R.com. Uh, but you can also check out John at um, Ecclesia. That is the church that he serves at. Uh, if you want to go to churchinhollywood.com, I think it's a fascinating website. It's a great website. Uh, but go check out the stuff that he's doing. But John, all that to say, it's good to have you with us, man. Thanks so much, Alan. This is great. Love you two guys. Miss seeing you in person. Miss our late night hangouts that we've had to skip out on with uh, COVID. So this is great to uh, create this hangout time. Yeah, it'll be good, man. We're going to we're going to get there sooner or later. I mean, we will. All of us will what, we converge in Orlando at least once a year and then things happen. So, yeah, let's just we'll leave that there. All right, Darren, I'm turning it over to you. Yeah, no. Uh, well, before we jump into uh, today, man, uh, John, you're just one of my favorite persons. Uh, I love I, I, I always think about when's John going to invite me to come work for him in Hollywood. Uh, as people listen to this podcast, they know how big a movie fan I am. And I am just. I'm enamored with your city, man. I love it. And so the whole industry and all of that. So I'm, I'm going to try not to geek out too much. I'm trying to limit my references to movies and all of that and just kind of keep the, keep it, keep the conversation grounded as much as possible. But um, we've, we've been doing this series that this, uh, for season three for the podcast. Uh, it's this series that we were kind of titling questions the church should be asking. And so we had Beth Wolf on. Uh, previously, and she, she had some just some really great insight. And so, uh, John, you are obviously one of the, one of the the leaders that we thought would be beneficial to have in this conversation. And so, we'll just kind of start there, man. I, I know there are a thousand different questions that can be unique, and there's probably a thousand questions that all sound exactly alike. And so, as you think through the questions that you're asking, the questions you're hearing other people ask, what what should we be asking? I'll probably st I'll start with what's been on my mind recently, which, uh, as you guys know, I my local elders here were gracious and wise enough to uh, offer me a 10 week sabbatical at the beginning of 2021, um, in part because I'd been honest with them in 2020 about how hard it was to pastor in covid. And I'd been honest to even say I'm not doing well as your pastor and I'm not sure exactly how to do better, but, you know, to start feeling better, but I just want you to know. Um, and so their response was to start, you know, creating some avenues and margin for me to get a little bit healthier. And I think because of my own experience on sabbatical and a lot of the formation books I was reading, and I kind of have an awareness now, or at least my radar is up for maybe other pastors who aren't doing well. I was on a, a network call for Made to Flourish Los Angeles recently, and um, the opening question for maybe the 30 people who zoomed in, you know, just around the room real quick, two minutes, tell us your name, where you're from and answer the question, where do you see flourishing in your life right now? And it was really sad to hear about eight or nine leaders say, there's nothing flourishing in my life right now. This has been the most incredibly challenging time of my professional ministry. 
I'm struggling. I, I don't even, I don't know how to answer that question in a positive way. And then it came to me and I got to say, well, actually I have some new really healthy practices that have emerged out of my 10 week sabbatical from this coach I'm with. And then everyone who went after me was like, I want that sabbatical. Where do you, you know, who, and it was kind of like, I felt guilty almost like, oh man, I can't believe everyone's struggling and I got this gift, but I've been thinking, you know, how do you share this gift with others, right? If I've had this experience and one of my, because again, it's all over Twitter at night. I mean, uh, you know, our friend in the missional conversation, Dan White, who is running, he's forming a new, basically pastor retreat center, I think down in, uh, in an island, where is that? In the Puerto, Puerto, Rico. Puerto Rico, you know, and I actually said, can I come? And he said, we don't have anything up yet. You can't come during your sabbatical. And I was like, shoot, where were you last year? But you know, he tweets a lot about this and in burnout. And I saw a stat last night on Twitter, some survey, 25% of pastors would take another job outside of ministry if, if offered to them today. I can't think of another time in church history in the last 30 years, you know, where I've been around the church where that's been the case. You know, there was so much fun and excitement and growth was up and to the right and you know, uh, just people were enjoying what they were doing, but there's just this real malaise right now. Um, and I read a great book on sabbatical, and I'll get to my question here, but I read a great book on sabbatical by uh, a guy named Andrew Root. I guess he goes by Andy, Andy Root. He's got kind of a three book series. And the, I read the middle one, which was called um, Pastoring in Secular America. No, it's kind of like how to be a pastor in secular culture. Okay. Um, and one of the things he said was in our secular culture today, the role of the pastor has been so diminished that there are a lot less social, cultural, ritualistic um, behaviors to participate in. Like the pastor, he still has people in his own community to care for, um, but it's not the same job it was 50 years ago. And I'll just give you a simple example. In California, um, you know, the state law says you can ask anyone to marry you. You don't need a professional clergy person or an ordained minister. Um, and so I have three couples in my local Ecclesia community whom I love, who I have friendships with. Now, one of them has asked me to perform their wedding because they have family members, friends, uncles who will be doing it. And not one of them has sought me out for pre-marriage counseling because they have professional counselors that they're going to. Now, 20 years ago, you didn't go to a professional counselor. You went to your pastor if you were in a church. And by the way, it was free and that was a value and you expect it. The point Andy Root makes is people don't even think first about the church to solve some of these needs in a secular culture. They go right to secular solutions. They don't think their pastor will be the one to marry them because they have a, a brother or an uncle who's really good in front of a crowd or a sister. They don't think about their pastor counseling you because, well, that's what there's a professional counseling down the street. I'll go there, you know. So all that to say, I did 19 weddings one year back in my mega church in the tr Christianized South. That was a lot of weddings, but that's a lot of fun. Honestly, I got to be part of 19 couples and part of their significant day and to celebrate that with them. I'm not getting to do that with these three couples. I may get invited to the wedding, but I'm not going to have the role that I'm used to having as a pastor. So I'm missing out on that, something that gives me life and joy in my job. So. That's just one example of how I think the face of the pastoral job has changed and why maybe we're all wrestling with why is this not as much fun as it used to be? Yeah. Um, and so I think the question that I would have for, you know, for churches or for the church itself is, 
how are you supporting your pastor? How are you supporting your leaders so they still will be in this job in five years? And if you're the pastor, what are you doing to get the resources you need so that you can stay in this job for another five years? And that was really the hard question for me over my own sabbatical was what has made this job so overwhelming? What has made this job no fun? It's not just teaching on Zoom. Um, there are other things. And what I realized was it was a lot of personal dysfunction. It was a lot of unhealth in my own life. It was habits of staff management and engaging with people that were not sustainable and that were kind of killing my spirit and soul. And so it took me a professional coach, you know, kind of 10 weeks with a spiritual director and a, and a coach to kind of get in my face a little bit and say, you have other options. You don't have to act this way. Um, and so, you know, to really invest the resources needed to make sure your pastors know that you support them. So maybe it's the offering of a sabbatical. Maybe it's the making sure they have a mentor, an outside coach. You know, maybe it's uh, Ecclesia has a policy where, you know, every year our entire pastoral staff has paid counseling available to them, a certain number of sessions for them individually. And if they're married for them and their spouse, they don't need to even ask. They just bill it, you know, just reimburse it recognizing if you're a church that your pastors are probably not doing as well as you think they are. And it's part of your responsibility as the body of Christ to know that about them and to um, help care for them because it may be even hard for them to ask for themselves. You know, I think yeah. that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, that's really good. And I wondered if it's so much because the church has adopted, I mean, we, we could say this all the time, but the church has adopted so much of the corporate culture and the corporate culture in the church, it's just, it's hard to coincide, bring those two things together and say, hey, it's about, you know, you get your job done, you get your work in, you get your hours in, you go do this stuff. But then you're doing a job that there's no time off. You you can be called at any time, you know, all of this stuff. And it just, it just grinds your soul down. I, I do have one question for you, John. Um, when you're talking about the, the flourish call, and you're talking about all these pastors who are just like, oh, this is hard. So one of the things I've been seeing, and it, I don't want to Im impose this on the rest of the world. It's just some of the stuff I've been seeing is I see like two different frames when it comes to this issue. One frame is those in some form of organized expression of the church. Maybe it's an established church. A lot of times you would say traditional church, anything like that. No matter how hip, cool, whatever, you've got the organized expression. And then you've got, on the other hand, you've got like planters and pioneers, people who are starting new expressions, especially missional expressions. And my experience a lot of the the guys and girls in the um, organized expression, they're feeling exactly like that. They're just wore out. Like all of a sudden this season has just put a halt to everything they knew about how they were going to do life. But what I'm seeing, and I'd be interested to see if, if you guys are seeing this, the planners and the pioneers, they're having a hard time navigating a global pandemic because there's no handbook for this. Nobody figured, told us how to do this. But they're almost salivating at, oh, we're primed for this. <laughs> like I can't wait. Like they, they are, you know, they, they adapted really quick. They're like, Hey, we're going to do this. We're already, you know, doing these things. And they kind of saw this opportunity and it fired them up. It like jazzed them up. Are you guys seeing that as well? Or is that just me? I definitely think there's a recognition that like the scales have tipped in, in the favor of the planter pioneer. You know, the world is, the playing field has given them a little bit of an advantage. They were, they were made for this. They were set up for this. And so there's an energy around it. Um, I'll be curious to see in the next three, four months when everywhere kind of reopens, um, if some of the enthusiasm they had goes away, if all of a sudden the, the pendulum swings back in the other direction. My experience, you know, being in Europe in that kind of planting pioneering world for three years in post-Christian culture was 
it's just it just takes so much longer to make a new disciple in that context, you know, to make a, a, a new follower of Jesus in post-Christianity. And so if you've grown up in the mega attractional church where your your metrics of success were Sunday attendance and, you know, and a lot of your baptisms were kind of coming back to Jesus baptisms, you know, and now all of a sudden you're kind of forming something from scratch and it's going to take longer and there's less of them. If you got that evangelistic heart, it's just it's just not as rewarding, you know, so. Yeah. You know, if you enjoy the shepherding side of smaller community care, the pastoral care side, if you enjoy the teaching, which you're getting to do a lot of right now, you know, in smaller gatherings, maybe it's energizing. Um, but I resonate a lot with the evangelists who are called to that new space and just find like, wow, it's a lot harder than I thought. And there's always the temptation to just kind of go back to big Sunday centric evangelism, you know, which really would just be gathering a crowd because it it brings a little bit more extrinsic reward. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I mean, you, you almost kind of stunned me uh, a bit with your your answer or even your question, because um, I, I give so much energy and thought to how do we sustain mission? I mean, heck, we just did a we, we just did a podcast on that, that very topic, but it's always mission oriented. Right. So how do we how do we stay in mission? That sustaining leadership, um, again, I think it's an important conversation that is, is often neglected. Um, and I think it gets, I can think it gets tossed aside by the, the way we do leadership in general. Uh, leadership is something to be used up and, and, and tossed aside. And so I'm fascinated with this idea, you know, sabbaticals and Sabbaths, th those are very commonplace um, in, in the church world. Uh, some, some people are lucky to get them. Some people are lucky to hear about them. <laughs> um, but um, when, when we, when we can, operate out of rest uh, is, is always, it's always better. It's always ad, more advantageous, but I, I am floored by this question is like, what, what are the resources we need? And, you know, all three of us are, are professional coaches to some degree in, in addition to the ministry that we do. Um, and I know that, that, that is something that I've seen in my own life that when I, when I connect with my coach, the people coaching in my life, it does help sustain me. It, you know, it helps me get there. Like, Hey, I can do this a little longer. Um, and then the coaching I provide for other leaders, I, I, I get from that's that viewpoint. And so I think coaching, um, again, not that this becomes an ad for the three of us, but you know, at the end, we'll tell everyone where you can find us if you want to hire us as a personal coach. Um, but this idea of coaching, which I've, I've come in recent years to attribute more to, it's kind of like a, 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 a contextualized spiritual direction kind of thing. It's, it's helping people take next steps um, and, and really taking a more holistic approach to life that it's not just, hey, what are your spiritual practices? We'll, we'll give you some tips on that. But like you as a whole person, so your family, your work, all of those sorts of things. And so those things are, are, are more in play now, which I think is going to help. And so coaching can play a, a really helpful role in helping leaders get down, get, you know, get a little further down the field, but I think you're right. I think there are some, some serious, um, uh, issues. And I, I know I've been in that place where, it, you know, I've always heard if, if you were offered a job and it was the same income, <laughs> like if, if I could, if I can make what I make now and not do ministry, I've heard the percentage as high as 50%, that 50% of pastors would be like, if I can take care of my family at the level I'm taking care of my family, and like, 
I'll, I'll take that job. Like almost like, I think every, you hear a lot. It's like, Oh, just sell insurance. And the first question they ask is, you know, is that a salary or is that something I have to like, is that sales based? What's what's, you know, but yeah, it's, it's real. It, it is real. There are a lot of people who are reeling right now. Alan, another question that comes to my mind is um, kind of in light of everything we've seen in the, the political world in the last uh, couple of years. Right. But um, you know, I talk in my book a little bit about the idea of the bell curve versus the well curve, you know, that the bell curve as a standard deviation, a way to show uh, a distribution of people in any society. And we tend to think of height, weight, IQ as, you know, there's a mean, there's a, a median in the middle, an average, and then, you know, um, you've got outliers on either side, right? But that um, socially, we have gone to more of a well curve culture where the majority of people are not in the middle anymore. They're not um, middle of the road in their views on anything. They're actually polarized. So half of them are on the left, half are on the right. And that you see this in in uh, preferences when it comes to technology or cars or uh, consumer goods, you know, we want the the biggest best. We also want all that smallest, most convenient in our pocket, you know? And so what you don't want is a mid-sized product in the middle. So a lot of companies have started ma stop making mid-sized cars because who wants the sedan? What you want is an SUV or a smart car, right? So um, I think in light of the political climate, what you're seeing is this radical divide between left and right, red and blue that, you know, led to, um, you know, the reactions to the election and then even the January uh, event at the Capitol. And I think that, um, you know, I grew up very much in that in that white Western European uh, suburban church of like the church doesn't deal with politics. And um, and I think what I realized is that in many ways that was kind of a covering to to not have to deal with um issues in society or at least issues that we didn't care about that pol if politics has to do with how resources and power are distributed within the social world then we absolutely should care about that as a church and jesus cared about that and jesus said a lot about about the the way power and and privilege and resources were distributed and how people use them in the service or abuse of others i mean my gosh that's you know you can't get through the Beatitudes without uh, seeing that. So, um, but what I see is that there are so many churches that, and again, I'm, I'm pointing the finger at myself because this is my church background, where the ability to live out the Jesus ethic and to understand the Jesus way, to really read the Gospels and see the heart of Jesus has been so um infiltrated or affected by our understanding of Western culture. And there is such a syncretism that has happened between, um, you know, gospel truth and Western values. And we don't know how to separate them to the point where if you are a, you know, white Western uh, Christian man and someone calls out, um, you know, America's place in foreign policy or someone calls out capitalism or someone calls out uh, you know, individual rights, you feel like there's an attack on your faith. Even though those are actually not necessarily Jesus faith issues, those are social issues in the more of the political realm, but they are so intertwined that it feels like they're attacking your Christianity. And so the Christian community that identifies kind of on that side is so fearful about protecting their rights um, as Christians and feels so persecuted um, and I think so. I think the question is, are you helping your people differentiate between the way of Jesus and the way of Western culture? 
And again, I'm speaking primarily to white Western European people, you know, our, our black and brown brothers and sisters who have not nearly been influenced by this or have been oppressed by elements of, of colonialism that came from Western culture, have their own uh, issues they're wrestling with. But I think for me and my people and people like me that I'm even trying to lead and pastor to be able to um, I did hold up a belief and say, is this biblical or is it cultural? You know, or what part of it is biblical and what part of it is cultural? Because the, you know, the, the radical individualism that we see, there's a great book on this. Kristen Dumez has written a book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is spectacular look at how the John Wayne ethic of the rugged American, you know, I don't give a damn cowboy kind of thing has become the way Christians viewed Jesus, which is not at all who Jesus was. Yeah. And has become the way they express their faith. You know, if I have a gun big enough, I'll make sure the world It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. At what point did Jesus try to use power and force to implement his will? Never. Why are we doing that? Well, that goes back to our cultural heritage. Yeah. So America was formed on some of these cultural values, um, but that were not necessarily Jesus values. And so, you know, I, I even in my own community have tried to teach on, you know, I, I did a message called clarifying the confusion of American Christianity. You know, there's a lot of fusion that we need to, uh, diff, you know, extract or separate from each other. This fusions become a confusion. And, um, you know, and so her book talks a lot about kind of the Christian nationalism and all this, of course, deals with racism as well, you know. Um, you know, capitalism, uh, yeah, so I think if you're not engaging these things, if you're not reading a lot as a leader and trying to get yourself some diverse perspectives, you know, I, I am always trying to add, um, you know, leaders from other thought camps into my Twitter feed. That's the easiest place for me to get exposed in little bite-side chunks, new ideas that I can follow on a rabbit trail. I may not want to, I don't have 20 books to read, you know, that I can read on something I may not agree with, but I can at least kind of see some new authors and see what they're saying and go down that trail, or at least see what perspective they're bringing to a shared experience that we have in the church. Um, so I think, I think churches really need to wrestle with how are we equipping them to do that? Yeah, that's, that's beautiful, man. But you got to be careful when you start doing that because you're starting to attack idols, buddy. <laughs> when you go after idols, people fight, they push back because in all of this conversation, it is the idea that everybody's being discipled, right? And, and you're either being discipled towards Jesus or away from Jesus, and you're going to be discipled by something. And again, you're right. We have been discipled by a lot of things. And we as a church have to look at ourselves and go, are we discipling people towards Jesus in a way that people are actually being formed more like Jesus and not more like the American Jesus, you know, whatever that version or whatever it is, you know, but dude, yeah, you start picking that fight. It's, it's not, yeah. it's not the crowd pleasing fight. That's the one where people start going, all right, deuces, I'm out. I'd rather have the uh, American Jesus than the, uh, the, the Middle Eastern Jesus that you're talking about. So I'd like to know how that goes for you, John. You better answer question one before you answer question two in my series of questions. Before. You better get healthy and stable and have the support of your leadership before you start tackling these things. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, and I'm, I'm curious from an organizational uh, standpoint, um, how, are, how are, are, have, are you guys navigating that currently? Uh, what, I mean, it sounds like you did a sermon series on this and you guys have done some teaching uh, to bring kind of shed light on the issue. What are some other things that, I mean, you would encourage, you know, pastors and leaders uh, who might be listening and say, hey, you know what, I, I can begin this process. Again, Sunday morning is never the best place to tackle these sorts of issues. It's often the follow through um, of a lot of other conversations. 
um, where you finally, you know, go public with all the little millions of micro conversations you've had. I think one of the key um, areas that Ecclesia has focused on, um, and this precedes me even, was continuing to have a great diversity and plurality within our leadership. So, you know, we, we are a, a church that has many, you know, men and women as elders. And if, you know, we were just celebrating even this week that our elder board elected the the chair the vice chair and the secretary and for the first time in our history all three of them are women and one of the women on the board literally started tearing up and saying i grew up in a church where this would never be possible i can't tell you how healing this is for me to be part of a community that would do this and you know there's five six men in the room who are all choosing this and, and affirming this and going well you all have the gift you're gifted for this we we affirm that you know so um, so I think from a gender point of view, so you get the diversity of perspectives and then from a racial and cultural point of view to have African-American, Korean-American, Asian-American people on that board who bring, you know, honor shame perspective to balance your guilt and innocence views or who bring the, you know, the, the struggle and lament um, experience of the African-American community along with the triumphalism and celebration of kind of the white church community and to have those perspectives at the leadership level and then at a staff level it then filters into how you lead your community you know and it filters into what sort of worship services you plan and what sort of discipleship pathways you create as well you know um so yeah i think that's you know we, we will i probably do one series a year um dealing with these sorts of uh issues around race um culture and every year i lose at least one family from it sure. and, we, and we all know it's going to happen and we sit with them we hold their hand and it's painful and sometimes they're close friends of mine and it's even more painful and i have to explain to my kids why are they leaving and um but you know i still think it's worth having those conversations and um you know mark mark <laughs> demaz encouraged me one time and i think i mentioned this in my book he always said you know yes you know one person leaves but one person stays and they're more secure with who you are. And that person will end up bringing someone else who believes that same thing. And in the end, think of it as two for one. And I was like, all right, <laughs> I'm going to try to do that, Mark. It doesn't feel like a two for one trade yeah. in the moment, but I like your optimism. Yeah. That's like the trade. That's, that's like the trade for the player to be named later. You yes. never know what you're going to get. Yeah. I think one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen of this was, uh, and I didn't even get to go, but I was at CCDA several years ago. And, and one of my co-pastors went to a roundtable discussion and the roundtable discussion was um, over the LGBTQ issue. And they got people, I think it was about, you know, 10 to 12, maybe had more, no more than 15 people around the room. But it was people from all over the perspective. I mean, from people who are very affirming to people who are not at all. And they got a facilitator and they said, we're going to talk. And I was like, and she told me about how it went and how everything went. And it wasn't like, hey, let's change anybody's mind. But it was it was kind of like saying, hey, we need to come back into the middle and have a conversation. So as opposed to the well, the well curve, let's have this bell curve and have conversations and be in each other's presence and say, yeah, OK, this is where we're at. But and I'm like, man, if you could figure out how to bottle that and make that accessible to the church in conversations, you, again, you can't do it on Sundays. You can't do it during the show. It's just never going to happen. But people around the table intentionally who are going to say, no, I'm going to look you in the eye. Because again, the worst thing I think about the, the COVID is the fact that we are now more segregated and separated, and we're just in the echo chambers of what's online, which is just going to, again, reflect what we already believe. And so as Christians, how do we bring them together? How do we do that? How do we bring people together? So yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful image there. 
And then I'll give you a third one. I think a, a third question, and this, you know, gets to the heart of my book and just the heart of my own journey in the last 10 years. But if you buy into this idea that it's going to take a different sort of church to make disciples in post-Christian culture and that it's going to take a more uh, faithful and, and innovative, adaptive church to deal with this new context we're in, and it's going to take a church that is not relying on disciple-making properties, programs, and professionals, but instead investing in disciple-making people. And I think the question you always need to be asking is, how are we forming, equipping, and resourcing the disciple-making people in our community? And are we seeing any fruit from, from their work? You know, And so that's an ongoing question of, of navigating, you know, checking back and forth. Do you guys have what you need? Do you need more? Do you understand? You know, do you buy into this vision? Um, celebrating and sharing stories. You know, you guys know we've done everything from kind of missional workshops, you know, for an hour after our worship service to equip people to do that. I'm always kind of, I'm thinking now even after COVID, how do I even take some of the Forge training and maybe relaunch that locally with some cohorts here to, to kind of think about the individual uh, missionary living. Um, Cause you know, I, I made a comment in my message last week about reemerging from COVID. And I said, the posture we've all had for 14, 16 months has been a quarantining, isolating posture. It's been the world is, is risky and potentially dangerous and unsafe. And so I need to stay inside. Don't think for a moment that living that way for 16 months from, for a, from a health point of view, doesn't actually train you to live that way relationally and socially as well. That it, we've formed our spirits now to be anxious and suspicious and fearful of people around us. And so the whole world is trying to reemerge and, and navigate public space again. Wouldn't it be amazing if the people of Jesus were the first community to show radical hospitality? to invite neighbors in, to, you know, to go from the, the wave in the hallway of my apartment complex over our mask to the quickly, like, I can't stop and talk to you. I don't know who you are. This is kind of dangerous to, would you take your mask off and come over to my house and have dinner? You know, and can we share food off the same common, you know, serving dish again, like human beings. And, you know, that's going to be hard for everyone, but it, what if the church led the way? You know, what if it was like, wow, Christians went back like they were in the first century, went back to being the hospitality people. Um, and so, yeah, I just say that's an example where right now we're trying to equip our disciple making people, our community to think through uh, creative ways to make disciples in this current context that are appropriate for the challenges we're facing right now. So, you know, that that's a question that should be kind of stenciled on the wall you know of every leadership meeting so that you don't just think about what's our sunday service you don't just think about how much money do we have you don't just think about you know um you know the day-to-day -day tyranny of the urgent issues but you think big picture are we forming disciple making people do they know that this is what we have called them to and do they have the resources they need um you know and if not then stop everything and let's get back on that mission yeah yeah, it reminds me of the idea of the meme, uh, of how do, how do we take an idea like that, and make it super simple, um, but make the idea where it, it's easy, it's easy to catch on, uh, it's easy to be adapted, it's easy to be, uh, to, to take it on and par participate in, in a unique way, right? I'm well, sure. and to be shared, Terry, I mean, the beauty of the meme is it's shared. So yeah. it's a, like you said, you know, you create this simple little tool of communication that people naturally want to share with others. I love that. I hadn't thought about the kind of the memification of your discipleship strategy. You know, that's great.
Yeah, because I, I think it, it's in that, right? It's it's in that ability to take something simple to to be able to have that community connection, the sharedness of it. Um, but then the 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 cool thing is is it's not so it's not so bogged down in it has to look this way. Like we we make it super custom customizable, right? And we're able to put the remix on it, right? I remember it used to drive me nuts uh, when someone would take. Really, it started with Fatboy Slim as he would take uh, Beastie Boys and just like, here's the remix of that whole album. And I was like, dude, just give me the original. But then like a decade later, it's like, oh, there's the genius in Fatboy Slim. Like you see the remix and and how it how it just changes it. And um, one of my favorite remixes is someone did a remix of the Beastie Boys greatest hits and did it lullaby style. So if, if you're a Beastie Boys fan, you can actually search Beastie Boys lullabies and it's all of their like best ones, but they like remixed it lullaby style. And like that, if we can figure out how we do discipleship, hospitality, whatever it is, it has to, what is the, again, there's no silver bullet, but what's the genius and the simplicity of it and then create the meme of it that people can take it and own it and do it however they want to do it. Right. They can they can create their own spin on it um, like that. That's the goal. The church has not figured out. But if but I think that's the way forward. I think that's what we have to figure out is how do we do that better? So the, there are two books on my uh, my desk right now. So one is, you know, Positively Irritating uh, by John Ridner, JohnRidner.com. And the other one is New Power. This book has been really rocking my world. If you haven't read this one. And in there, they talk about how kind of ideas and things like that get across. And I wrote this in the margins of this one area kind of like getting the spread of new power. I wrote down discipleship and evangelism, but they say, oh, they've got those acronym, which stands for ACE. It's uh, actionable, connected, and extensible. So actionable, the idea has you do something. So I want to be more and more like Jesus, right? Connected, the idea promotes a peer connection with people who care about uh, the shared values. That makes sense. And then extensible, which I think is the idea you're going at, is the idea can be easily customized, remixed, and shaped by the participant. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's, that is what, you know, this is what this gospel message is all about. Like it is, we, we, we got something we got to do. We're going to be connected, but it's also, it's going to be contextual. It's good. We have to make it extensible. How do you remix it? Yeah. Well, what's beautiful is it's, it's often the remix or the, uh, the, the, the third or fourth iteration of something that often becomes the most memorable, right? You know, people always hold back as like, well, it's, it's the original, you know, it's the source content and all of that. But like, I've read some of the source content that movies get made on and it's not very good, but the beauty in, in people, sometimes it's, it's good. You know, so, but sometimes the book is better, but, um, but like the ability to, to do something, you know, I've, I've, I'm not a big uh, old school uh, kid stories guy, but uh, Jorma Tacombe has his, has a whole podcast on, he's called, he calls them Derek stories. And they're just like little twists of, of, children's stories with a and i will never in my life forget those stories from the lens of Derek, hmm. this this fictional character who places himself in these stories i now actually know the story you know of the, the lion and the mouse I, if you'd asked me before i listened to that podcast i'd have said there was a lion and a mouse and that was about <laughs> it but now i have this memorable and these are like short little two, three minute podcasts, but they're super memorable. I will always remember that because someone took it and, and then created something that made it so accessible and easily to memorize. 
uh, not even memorized, just to remember. And it's like, it stuck with me. And I think the church, I think we've missed that. I think we try to make these things so big and so they're, they're, they're a bit cumbersome. And so, but how do we get back to make things simple, transferable, you know, as Hirsch would say, sneezable, the idea that they can spread very easily. I think that's what we have to get back to. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's transition as we close, uh, John, uh, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Uh, just some great stuff today. Um, but we're going to hit you with our five quick questions. And so I'm just going to fire hose them. Uh, and you just give me your gut reaction, gut response. We won't judge you too harshly uh, <laughs> All right. on your answer. So, uh, first question is what are you reading? What's, what's, what's good that you've been reading? Uh, yeah, I started a book over sabbatical that I'm um, using in my teaching series now called Unclean uh, Meditations on Purity by a guy named Richard Beck, who I think is a professor at, um, maybe at Asbury. Uh, and it's it's all about the, uh, kind of the, an understanding of Matthew 9, where Jesus talks about, um, you know, I desire. Uh, he says, go and study what it means when. Hosea says, you know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's this kind of relationship between sacrifice and mercy. And he connects that to uh, a seminar he went to on disgust psychology and um, and basically connecting the dots between how much of the religious experience in America today is not formed by the way of Jesus, but it's formed by cultural um, norms around disgust psychology, around insiders and outsiders, around creating a boundary. And he's chapter one, he says, you know, gra imagine grabbing a little Dixie spit cup, you know, from uh, uh, brushing your teeth when you were a kid. You remember they had little dispensers, you know, mm -hmm. before we figured that maybe there was, wasn't the best thing to do to use a cup every night for the environment, you know, <laughs> for your water. And he says, take that cup and I want you to spit in it. Now put it off on the table. Um, and then he reads, a, you know, a couple paragraphs and he says, now pick that cup back up and I want you to swallow it. And he says, Every time I do this with students, their nose turns up, they go to a visible disgust uh, reaction. And what he says is, why? 10 minutes ago, that was in your mouth. You swallow that all the time. Yeah. But the point being that when saliva crosses out of the boundary of your mouth, it becomes spit. It's no longer part of you. It's exterior to you. It's mm. other. It's different. And the idea of taking something other and different and bringing it back into your body that's disgusting. Hmm. And he says, that's what we do in community. We take something, we expel it, we claim it to be an other, we demonize it even to the point of making it a monster, and we would never allow it back into our community. And we create a boundary. And so the whole book then is about the boundary creation of the Pharisees versus the boundary crossing of Jesus. It's fascinating. And um, and he talks a lot about bodily fluids and bodily function and how this psychology plays out. So I'm, I'm having my staff read it now and I'm, you know, I'm loving the, the upturned noses that some of these passages evoke in people. So, um, yeah. And that's unclean by unclean by Richard Beck, Richard Beck. Okay. Oh, awesome. That's fascinating. Uh, number two, uh, what have you been watching? Which this is, there is a little pressure on this one, dude. You're a Hollywood guy. So you got to have something good. You know, um, the show that I just finished binging was the new season of the Formula One documentary on Netflix. I think it's called Drive to Thrive or something like that. Drive to Succeed, maybe. Um, and a friend of mine uh, who worked in content acquisition at Netflix was actually the original um, person who brought that show to Netflix. And so I watched the first season, you know, really excited to share it with him. 
and I've been kind of hooked on it. And I'm not really a big race car driver, but it's sorry, I'm not a big race car driving fan. Definitely not a race car driver. Um, but there's something fascinating about the world of Formula One, where you basically have these 12 teams. You know, each team with two drivers or so, and uh, they each have to create their own car. And at the end of the day, they really have similar access to money, similar access to resources, uh, similar access to um, talent. And yet a team like Mercedes has won the championship five years in a row. Yeah. That doesn't happen in the NFL. That doesn't happen in the NBA. We call those dynasties. That happens pretty regularly in Formula One. And when you watch the show, you realize it's it's about it's a show about culture. It's a show about culture creation. It's a, it's, it's about team from owner to driver all the way down to mechanic who, you know, replaces the tires. And so I just kind of love watching a world that I'm not at all familiar with and making observations in my mind about team dynamics, staff relationships, culture creation. Why is one team winning and one team losing every year? You know, so that's been fun. Yeah. And what I found fascinating about that was the, uh, the, the idea of perfection on how the only way to win Formula One is you you have to be as near perfect. You have to be perfect on that day. And they the way that they talk about how you're slightly, you, you took this turn at just slightly the wrong angle. When in our eyes, you're like close enough, fast enough, but like it's the small imperfection that prevents people from succeeding. Uh, that it really is the tiny details. I was that was fascinating to me. That blew me away. Uh, all right. Uh, question number three. Uh, what is the funniest thing to happen to you in quarantine or the funniest thing you've seen in quarantine? <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, I've loved, as probably most parents, you know, I've loved having my kids at home and we have a small two bedroom apartment. So my daughter's taken over uh, the kids room. Uh, my 15 year old daughter has taken over uh, the kids room. And then my 12 year old son has taken over the dining room table. And so, um, you know, as I kind of work out of the, the living room, which is really the open dining room as well, I get to see him in class all day. And I think I, every day I am in awe of how funny my 12 year old son is because he's on these Zoom classes and he'll mute himself. And then he's just got a standup routine going all morning in interaction. His answers to questions, the side comments he makes. He's not making them to anyone. I think he's begun to realize that I'm in the room and I really feel like it's kind of playing to me a little bit, but it's, um, it really has become one of the delights as someone who enjoys being funny and loves laughing and loves making my wife laugh to have a, a child who thinks making others laugh is, is so enriching. Um, yeah, he, he cracks me up with the stuff he says, uh, each day in response to the teacher's comments. And, you know, the other kids who are struggling in various levels with COVID themselves. That's great. That's awesome. Uh, what's bringing you life right now? What's been life-giving? Man, uh, my first week of sabbatical, I reached out to um, a church planter that I was kind of coaching who um, has a business called Power Coaching. And he does a lot of holistic um physical mental health work with uh, elite athletes. Like he's training NFL guys. He was training college guys getting ready for the combine and he's got free agents now that he's working with and stuff. And he um, does a lot with ice baths and sauna and then breathing techniques. And so I went and spent a week with him and, and did all this stuff, did the ice bath, did the sauna, did these deep breathing activities. And then I got turned on to this app he gave me called Breathwork, 
And I've been amazed the power of intentional deep breathing uh, to reset your kind of neurological uh, system, to really reset you, your anxiety, your emotion, to, um, yeah, in a way that I was never aware of. And so uh, I had this app and, and even recently I got a phone call that we had just lost our Sunday gathering space and that we had nowhere to meet when we were planning on meeting in six weeks. And I hung up the phone and the first thing I did was grab my phone and start a six minute breathing exercise and I laid down on the floor. And I I just Great. did the breathing, you know, and it helped me kind of center. It's a, kind of a form of meditation, you know I mean? To me, it's very much, I'm thinking about breathing in the presence of God and breathing out all of my anxiety, but I'm doing it in a rhythm that, you know, they have found physiologically adds incredible health to the body too. So it's, to me, it's a nice combination of mind, body, spirit stuff that has been really life-giving for me. That app is called Breathwork. Nice, brilliant. Uh, and then the final question, uh, what is your favorite thing about Hollywood? I mean, that's your home these days. What's your favorite thing about uh, the city you live in? I love that every day you meet people around the city, whether it's, you know, for me, play, my missional spaces, basketball courts, golf courses, you know, often around sports or watching sports and you meet people and I love asking them, you know, what creative passion brought you to Hollywood? Cause that's a much more inspiring question than what do you do in Hollywood, which often they're not doing what they want to be doing. Um, but I love being surrounded by creative, innovative people. I mean, yeah. they're storytellers. They are um, incredibly creative in how they think about life and how they're approaching their craft and what they're trying to do, whether they're actors or directors or, you know, writers or whatever, or even, you know, um, you know, prop makers and lighters and things like that, you know, their ability to creatively problem solve. And so, um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I draw a lot of energy from that as someone who's creative, but has never been um, traditionally artistic. I can't pick up a pen, you know, a, a, a pencil and draw something or a paintbrush and create anything. And I'm not an instrument music guy, but I've always seen myself as a creative thinker. And so to be in a world where you're constantly rubbing shoulders with other creatives like that has been incredibly life-giving for me. That's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Thanks, John, for being on the podcast with us, man. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate your your insight and your wisdom. And again, johnrittner.com. Go grab the book. Definitely want to make sure that's out there. So, yeah. Yeah, glad you're here with us, man, and looking forward to seeing you again. We'll be in the same room soon, hopefully. Very soon. Very soon. It's great to see you guys. Always love our times together. All right. Until next time. Thanks, John.